Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Rutherford, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. In this podcast series, we will be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and work safely. It's about what to do when managing risk matters most. In this edition, we focus on special needs dentistry, what it is, how we can access this specialty for our patients, and also some handy hints for managing challenging patients. My guest today is Associate Professor Andrew Lee, who is a special needs dentistry specialist. Andrew graduated from the University of Wales College of Medicine in 2003 with a Bachelor of Dental Surgery. Having spent part of his undergraduate, and I'll apologise to the French speakers out there, at University Paris Descartes, as well as undertaking charity work in both Belarus and Uganda. Following his graduation, he immigrated to Australia to take up a position as a remote dentist, first in Central Australia and later in Darwin as the remote services manager for the top end of the Northern Territory. Having spent four years in Outback Australia, he then completed a Doctor of Clinical Dentistry in Special Needs Dentistry at Melbourne University. In 2011, he was awarded a fellowship by Craner Plus for his contribution to remote health. He then moved to Cairns to take up a position at James Cook University with its focus on training work-ready graduates for remote and isolated practice. Andrew currently holds appointments as Associate Professor of Preventive and Special Needs Dentistry at the School of Dentistry at James Cook University in Cairns. He recently relocated to the Westmead Centre of Oral Health in Sydney's West as Staff Specialist and Head of Department of Special Care Dentistry. Andrew's current research interests include the dental management of patients with complex medical issues. He has published articles on a broad range of subjects from remote clinical practice to the use of antibiotic prophylaxis in dentistry. So Andrew, thanks very much for agreeing to do this podcast. Thank you very much, Mike, for um, inviting me uh, to come and speak to you today. Um, You know, of course, how grateful I am um, for the help and support of both yourself and DPL over the years, over the many years, um, to both myself um, and the organisations I've worked for, and um, of course, your commitment and support to continue professional development. Beautiful, thanks. We appreciate that, um, colleagues. By by way of background, Andrew wrote a couple of articles for Dental Protection in the past on rural and remote dentistry. So while I was preparing for today, I came across a photo of a pretty skinny young man squinting into the sun in front of a massive truck and trailer generator standing on fine red dirt with nothing but a flat horizon behind him. Do you miss those days of traveling through the outback in a dental van? Was life easier then, Andrew? (laughs) Um, Good question. Um, Yes, I do miss it. Um, I'm not sure it was easier, simpler, yes. Um, Certainly my horizons have shrunk, physically at least. I think my practice has always um, encountered a significant level of risk. Um, as well as a, a degree of physical, if not um, professional isolation. Um, there certainly isn't a safety net when you're practicing dentistry in the outback. 
If you run into trouble there, there's no friendly specialist to refer to. So you end up digging yourself out. I guess my remote and isolated practice informed my decision to undertake further training. The populations of remote communities are often more prone to chronic disease and have less well managed than their metropolitan counterparts. And the management of an adverse effect in the, in, um, in the outback relies on limited resources and um, access to tertiary care. So there was an element of flying by the seat of my pants. Um, now I have the safety net of practicing a large, well-resourced hospital um, with ready access to medical and dental specialists alike. So when I'm stuck in Sydney's traffic for the two hour round trip to Westmead, I sometimes think about um, my other work journeys um, of those earlier days, uh, the private charter flights over Kakadu escarpment, looking down over rainforests and waterfalls, and um, uh, particularly like my last flight out of Bowen Pelly in East Arnhem, um, traveling on dirt roads across the desert of Central Australia, um, to some of the most remote communities on earth, um, dodging camels and wandering stock, overtaking road trains and praying that I get in front of them before I reach oncoming vehicles. And um, sometimes I'd clutch the steering wheel so tight my hands would go numb. Um, then of course, there were the amazing adventures that I had while I was out there, the, the wonderful people that I met, um, the secret water holes I swam in and uh, the search for bush tucker, sleeping under um, the stars in a swag and um, without light pollution and being amazed by how filled the sky was with stars. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's, um, that's an adventure that I think probably there's only a couple of hundred Australians have experienced. Um, yeah, let alone a, a at that stage fairly recent immigrant. Yeah, um, I was lucky to do it for work. Yes, <laughs> yes, get paid for it. Um, I think there's an interesting parallel there, there too. You're saying you didn't have the safety net, but now in your current role, you're providing a safety net for your colleagues. Um, when we feel out of our depth or feel that we can't treat somebody, um, you're providing that safety net for us. So. I guess, as an introduction, what, what does your typical day look like now, if, if there is such a thing as a typical typical so, day? Um, I guess, um, thanks, Mike. I, I guess there, there isn't really um, a typical day as clinics um, and work commitments are planned over a four-week schedule. But I guess a, a typical day starts with um, a trip down Parramatta Road, uh, trying to find my place of zen and listening to an audiobook um, and then um, getting into work we start our day with a staff huddle followed by more um, individual chats with our residents and registrars um, about the cases uh, they plan to see making sure that all the necessary investigations and correspondence have been carried out um, and that this sort of preparation is to ensure the safest and most appropriate um, patient care um, because I mean really um, a lot of the uh, the procedures we're doing are, are relatively routine dentistry, but it is that preparation and treatment planning that's that's key to um, uh, key to these cases. Um, I was in work late last night, um, which is always the case before I take a day off. Um, however, I did take a, a moment to reflect on the workplace that I work in, um, and the two standout aspects uh, that first come to mind are the laughter. Um, and I'm not talking just about polite chuckling, I'm talking about tears rolling down my face, but also um, the care of our staff um, take with each other, the regular check-ins, um, the impulsive need for that interacting with each other, and um, 
um, it's a, it's really a group of people that just energizes off each other, like a little group of batteries sharing their charge in order to keep the motor running. So, um, and I am constantly reminded of how lucky I am to have found this group. And I think this is obviously key in, in, um, uh, in having an effective uh, clinical practice. That's brilliant. Um, I, I'll get onto this later, but um, yeah, certainly my experience is good staff and caring staff are, uh, um, they're fundamental to care of patients, but particularly patients with, who are challenging to treat for whatever, for whatever reason. Absolutely. Um, now, when I started dentistry, admittedly, it was a long time ago, there were no special needs referral pathways. And I remember thinking at times whether I could refer my adult special needs patients to a paediatric dentist because of their skills and facilities for GAs. Um, but now we've got this res uh, registered specialty, Andrew. Um, can you tell us what is the specialty of special needs dentistry? Sure. So um, special needs dentistry has is, is obviously been, effectively it's been around forever um, since there are, uh, there have always been people with um, uh, the need for um, special care uh, and special um, um, treatment plans. Um, however, um, it was in 1981 that um, three American uh, journals, the American Association of Hospital Dentists, the American Academy of uh, Dentistry with Persons with, and with Disability, and the American Society of Geriatric Dentistry that were merged to form a single journal um, called Special Care in Dentistry. And that was the first time that special care had been used um, within the dental profession. Um, in uh, about 20 years later, in 1998, Glassman and Miller proposed that uh, patients with special needs referred to um, medical, social, psychological and physical conditions that make it necessary to modify the normal course of dental treatment. Um, examples of such conditions include medical and developmental disabilities, uh, problems associated with ageing and um, psychological problems. Um, but it wasn't until um, the Australian Dental Council first recognised um, uh, special needs dentistry as a specialty in November 2003, which was only um, a matter of months after I arrived in Australia. Um, and from this, we now have the, um, the, the recognised um, registrable specialty of special needs dentistry. Um, and APRA, um, and they define it as the branch of dentistry that is concerned with the oral health care of people with an intellectual disability, medical, physical or psychiatric conditions that require special methods or techniques to prevent or treat oral health problems, or where such conditions necessitate special dental treatment plans. So I, I think another thing just to clarify is that um, you often hear the word special care dentistry and special needs dentistry. These are, in fact, one and the same thing. And, and it, it's often um, a geographic distance more than anything um, in the Northern Hemisphere um, tends to be referred to as special care dentistry, whereas Australia, it's more um, uh, we, we uh, refer to it more as special needs dentistry. So there are a number of organisations that are involved with special needs dentistry. Here in Australia, we've got the Australian and New Zealand Academy of Special Needs Dentistry, which is um, the peak body for specialists 
um, in special needs dentistry. But then, of course, we've got um, ASCID, the Australian Society of Special Care in Dentistry, which is open to everybody involved in the care of those individuals with special needs. And then, of course, we've got some international organisations that um, uh, that we rely on um, and we rely on for resources, um, such as the um, International Organisation for Disability and Oral Health, um, which has its biennial conference in Paris uh, next month, actually. Um, Are you going? I, I am, yes. Are you lucky boy? <laughs> <laughs> and it's my first uh, escape from Australia since COVID, so I'm very much looking forward to that. Oh, that's great, yeah. That's a pretty broad charter there, Andrew. So do I assume that this encounters or includes uh, true dental phobias or people with severe anxiety? Do they form part of that group that you that you treat or look after? Yes, absolutely. And um, my colleague, uh, Dr. Randa Carvey, um, has dedicated uh, a significant portion of her practice to the treatment of those with um, true uh, dental phobias. Um, and and that multidisciplinary approach to how we manage those individuals. And could I ask, do you, is the essence, essence trying to get over those phobias to try and reduce the phobias or to provide the treatment to phobic patients? Well, I think it, it is a sort of a true pronged approach. Often people with true dental phobias arrive with having significant dental disease um, because of their um, uh, avoidance of um, oral, oral health care providers. Um, so that often needs to be addressed um, in an acute manner. Um, and we, we often need to employ things like um, relative analgesia, but more often IV sedation. Of course, when you are looking at something like a dental phobia, um, often dental phobias have precipitated from some form of tra trauma, be it within the dental setting or outside of the dental setting. And that trauma often will um, involve something to do with the, the face and the mouth. So when you are trying to, um, to manage uh, that level of dental phobia, sticking um, a mask on somebody's face to try and um, uh, provide relative analgesia often isn't the most appropriate um, means of managing that phobia. Of course, we know that nitrous oxide has that like, anxiolytic effect, um, so great, but it's actually the delivery of that can um, be another trigger to, to dental phobia. So we often see those patients as um, um, being treated um, for those acute issues um, under um, either intravenous uh, sedation or potentially under general anesthetic. And that helps to obviously take care of the acute issues. But what we also need to focus on as well is the rehabilitation of that phobia. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a more a long-term um, long approach to that patient's care. Um, and that um, often will involve the use of, um, uh, of a psychologist as well, um, mm -hmm. which may be outside of the dental setting. Um, and that cognitive behavioral therapy um, approach, because essentially, I mean, there are very few people actually enjoy a trip to the dentist, yeah. but what we want is for people to not feel that it's a, a huge endurance um, and to get them over the, their phobia and to make it part of, um, you know, their routine life that they know that they they're they going to go to a, a dentist for a checkup and not to, mm -hmm. you know, 
start that anxiety journey a week or a couple of weeks before that bit in the same way that I have to deal with flying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's a long, it's a long flight to Paris, so it is. you'd have to progress. Um, so Andrew, like most general dentists, I have a few patients with intellectual disabilities and we seem to struggle on treating them with the help of good staff and good carers. But I'm always aware that the quality of the work I'm doing is not as good as it should be. And I wonder if I'm doing the right thing. Um, I keep thinking that we're taking the least invasive approach and, and just sort of getting, you know, pushing things along. Um, what do you think, Andrew? Is this, do we generally undertreat people with special needs or not refer in good time? Or So I think... I think the, the the approach to people with special needs is essentially the approach that we should be taking with the general population in that respect. And I'm obviously a big advocate for minimal intervention dentistry. Um, less is more. Um, and I'm always mindful that every intervention that we do begets another intervention. So, mm-hmm. you know, we start by, we see caries. If we stick... Um, you know, a drill into that, then we then have a filling. We then have, you know, potential um, area that's going to get recurrent caries if we haven't managed the disease. Um, And then from that, um, in somebody who's able to tolerate it, that filling becomes a crown, becomes an endodontic um, uh, treatment, becomes an extraction, becomes an implant bridge, whatever. Mm -hmm. So what I, um, and how I deal with, both general dentistry and special needs dentistry is to try and prevent that cascade, that house of cards. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly as um, whatever we do in a, in a mouth with a patient, for a patient with special needs, um, it has to be maintainable. And that right. maintenance may not necessarily be timely maintenance as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, I want to try and uh, steer away from the house of cards effect. And, you know, what we're doing, what we should be trying to do to do as um, healthcare professionals is actually treat disease. And that involves prevention. Um, and, and that's the crux of it. Actually, the drilling and the filling isn't necessarily the treatment of disease. It's the restoration of the disease, but it's not necessarily getting in there and managing the disease. So from that perspective, I think there's so much we can do and and so much um, that the the, the general um, dental practitioner uh, community can do for these uh, for these individuals and you have to remember like you we were talking about before that this is a relatively new specialty it's certainly come about in yours and my uh, working life um, and so there haven't always been specialists in special needs dentistry however there always have been people with special needs being treated effectively um, and which um, also makes me mindful of the um, uh, of my um when i look to my mentors so dr meg and simmons and dr bruce simmons who were um and still are instrumental in how i approach patient-centered care um and indeed service to our client group um and then of course there's um dr peter king who is the the father of 
um, special care dentistry in New South Wales. None of these people are actually um, ended up specialising. However, I would defer to their professional judgment. Um, so I think that's, I, th I think we, I do have to, um, I think we need to be mindful that the skills and talent um, are abundant in the community of general dental practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and because of that, and to avoid this almost discriminatory approach to somebody who's got special needs, therefore I feel I need to, um, to, to refer them. Mm -hmm. And in that process, end up sticking them on a waiting list where there may be yeah. long times where disease goes unchecked mm. um, uh, and therefore their out health, oral health outcomes decrease. That is not a, that's not a good outcome. That is not the specialty actually um, improving the mm. lot of those with special care. That's actually the specialty um, in impeding care yes. um so I, I i just want to be um to be clear about that and i guess that's why i chose right from the beginning right from graduating as a specialist i went straight into academia at james cook university and that was so that i could help and support the workforce of general dental practitioners to service this community because you know the vast majority of individuals with special needs will be treated by general dental practitioners. And if you think about the number of specialists there are in Australia, there's only 24 of us. Mm -hmm. And of those, only 18 are actually practicing clinically. So mm -hmm. if you look at, and this is only one portion of the, of, of the clients we have um, with um, special care needs in Australia, if we just look at disability, there are 4.4 million Australians have some form of disability. Of those, 1.4 have profound disability. Now, if you divide 1.4 million by 18, um, you've got some there around 80,000. Now, for me to see 80,000 um, patients, if I were just to do a 30-minute consultation mm -hmm. or um, those 80,000, so nothing else, no teaching, no supervision, no research, no management, no treatment, nothing else. It would take me nearly six years. Yeah. So that's not an effective use of the specialty. Mm -hmm. um, supporting general, den uh, general dental practitioners, I feel, is an effective use of the specialty. Te teach a man to fish and you'll feed him for a lifetime. So, Absolutely. Um, look, I, I, I guess that's, that, that makes sense. And it's obvious when you state it that you know, to, to arrest what's causing the disease. But for a significant portion of these people, that would be dependent on the interest and the quality and the time of their carer or, or parent. Um, I mean, a lot of these people don't have the ability to care for themselves as far as arresting, or arresting causes of disease. Do you, do you see that as an emphasis? That, uh, Absolutely. Educating the, the, the carer or the parent? Absolutely. And even more so, that team of people around that individual may change over time. So, and what we, we often see are individuals who are under the care of their parents, both as children and um, young and middle-aged adults, um, having their diet maintained, having their oral health, hygiene maintained, and having, you know, great teeth. And then um, at some point that parent or carer 
may not be able to deliver that um, that care, and there may be some degree of uh, of, of uh, and there may be a change, um, and that change may bring about a social trauma, um, and then you've got um, a new set of carers who are trying to deliver the same. They may have significant carer burden. Uh, the the individual may go into a group home or an aged care facility, and then whatever whatever you've done for that patient, whatever the carers have done, whatever the treating practitioner has done, then needs to be maintained in in that new um, that new phase of that individual's life. So when I am um, thinking about um, treatment planning for um, these individuals with special care needs. And we are looking at um, the factors around um, their, their risk factors for oral um, disease. And the, these individuals may be um, well cared for, their mouths may, may uh, have been very well maintained by a group of carers and advocates, and that's the key thing here, they, they, um, their parents um, uh, are often great advocates for their oral health. Whilst the care and management and prevention in that setting may be ideal, we always have to think of um, uh, the, the, the future and um, when those individuals uh, potentially transition to um, another environment, be it a, a group home or an aged care facility, whereby those same advocates aren't there to ensure adequate prevention, to sure, ensure um, those uh, that the diet, dietary prevention um, uh, management um, and oral hygiene. Um, and so whenever we are thinking about those um, treatment management interventions, I, I think to, um, you know, the silver wave stuff that um, Professor Ian Myers um, and Laurie Walsh and um, Matt Hopcraft um, have all spoken at length about that we are planning for that future and that whatever intervention that we're doing, that has to be maintainable in that future of that individual. Mm -hmm. I think we've we've all heard that, you know, that anguish of parents with adult children with a disability and their fear for what's going to happen when they pass on or can't provide that care and, and who's going to look after their adult child. So, yeah, I, I think you've addressed that idea that, you know, there, there's likely to be a succession of, of people advocating or caring for uh, some of these people with disabilities. Yes. Yeah. So as GDPs, can we access this specialty? I mean, you've just said there's 18 and, uh, and I, I, I forget the figures, but um, a significant number of millions of people. Um, so there's obviously not enough special needs dentists to go around. So can we access it? Yes, yes. So there, there are... Um, uh, Depending on where where you're situated, obviously um, in the Northern Territory, um, the um, ACT and Western Australia, there are no um, specialists um, currently practicing, currently providing um, clinical services. In Queensland, and again, this is sort of centred around Brisbane, there are five specialists. In New South Wales, we, again, we have five specialists. In Victoria, they're lucky enough to have nine. 
and um, South Australia, they have four, and Tasmania, I believe, is serviced by a visiting specialist from South Australia. So yeah. there are clinics, um, there are um, there are uh, specialist-led clinics um, in Australia. They tend to be centred around those major centres such as Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, Sydney, and Adelaide. Um, however, they're not the only um, resources for um, individuals um, uh, requiring uh, a special needs management. And what we've um, tried to do to that ends and acknowledging that, you know, our service and particularly the service that I look after does not necessarily meet the needs of the um, significant population. What we've what we've tried to set up, or what we have set up rather, is um, a, a mini residency at um, Westmead um, okay. uh, Centre for Oral Health, uh, yeah. where um, residents come in for a twelve week um, uh, uh, slot. Um, from more regional um, areas in New South Wales. Um, they then work with us, see how we work and um, pick up, you know, tips and tricks um, from us, but also develop, and this is what's key, I believe, develop that relationship between um, a tertiary centre mm-hmm. and um, a more rural setting. So it's it's not, and again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, it's about supporting GDPs, Mm-hmm. Um, upskilling and maintaining and supporting that scope that allows um, and supports them to see individuals with special needs. Mm-hmm. So they then go back to their um, the, um, to their rural, rural remote um, uh, clinics, and they then can then champion um, uh, amongst the re- their other colleagues mm-hmm. um, the, the the management of um, patients with special needs. And then, of course, they can um, use us um, as a resource as and when. So what we then get, which is ideally what um, I would love to happen in terms of referrals, is that people um, uh, provide appropriate referrals. They refer in for specific um, patient needs, Mm -hmm. but then they maintain that relationship um, uh, and um, with with, with the... um, with the individual uh, so that whilst they may be able to undertake um, routine checkups um, and potentially simple dentistry and then save the more complex um, and uh, more challenging aspects to the referral. Mm-hmm. And that's that I believe is making the most of the, the specialist um, okay. service and removing that burden. Yeah, that makes sense. So, how and when should we refer patients to you or your colleagues? You know, given that most of us are in suburbia. Um, you know. So what, what sort of, um, what, what degree of special care needs? Um, yes. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess um, when you have, um, there's a few sort of broad um, uh, indications for a referral to a specialist. So when you have significant communication issues, so patients that are non-verbal um, and um, they don't have any um, augmentative or alternative way of community uh, communicating, um, so that, that, that no use of communication boards or sign language or um, or intermediary or or for those uh, patients who can be extremely um, uh, it can be extremely difficult to 
to um, diagnose and manage um, their care needs, then yes, I guess that those are a, a, a group that, that should be referred. Um, cooperation, obviously, when um, there are significant challenging behaviours that, um, that precipitate uh, multiple disruptions um, requiring appointments to be more than 50% longer, um, mm -hmm. then I guess that that would be um, an appropriate referral. Medical status. So those that are, um, have significant complexities in their medical um, histories that require a multidisciplinary review in order to decide whether or not to treat them and the precautions that um, uh, required to safely manage these patients. So, you know, the need for multidisciplinary um, treatment meetings, case conferences, and those, those mm -hmm. obviously fit well outside of um, a GDP's um, uh, remit. Um, and then of course, physical disabilities access. So not every GDP, GDP is going to have, um, you know, access to a hoist or a wheelchair mm -hmm. tilt. Mm -hmm. So for patients that can't um, transfer, can't wait, um, uh, wait bear and transfer to a, um, to a, um, uh, a dental chair, then again, they may, they may require um, access to those special facilities for mm -hmm. maybe treatment. However, that doesn't negate uh, the GDP from, um, from examining or maybe sure, sure, um, yeah. x-rays and so on. So what, what information should we include in a referral? Um, I, I guess to help you, but also improve the chances of acceptance of, the, of, of, a, of a patient from us? Sure. So um, I guess, first and foremost, I really need to know the reason why um, why the, the, the referring practitioner is referring to me. So what aspect of the person's medical history or disability or their dental management requires mm -hmm. the undertaking by a specialist? Mm -hmm. um, then um, the information gathering, of course, if, if the referral doesn't have the required information, then of course that transfers the burden of, of that onto us. And our resources are far better used in, um, in actually managing the patient rather than contacting GPs for a comprehensive medical summary, mm -hmm. um, a list of their current medications, as well as a list of their past medications, because of course their past medications may also inform their risk of um, uh, of, of, of issues, you know, particularly with the likes of things like um, the anti-resorbative medications and so on. Um, and then, um, so that sort of um, general medical um, summary, as well as any specialist um, reports, cardiac reports, neurological mm -hmm. reports, respiratory reports, all those sort of things really do help us um, get a, a quick and accurate picture of, of mm -hmm. where the patient is at. Does, does pain or the degree of pain present uh, influence the chances? Absolutely, yes. Okay. So um, individuals with obviously intractable pain, um, facial swelling, mm -hmm. um, trauma, they're all going to um, go to the front of the queue. Right, okay. Because, I mean, we do really have to rationalise and triage um, those referrals. I get a, a heap of referrals every week. And, of course, there's there's very few of us to deal with those. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to be mindful of using the limited resources we have to best effect um, mm -hmm. and to, to manage the most acute issues. Sure. Um, I guess the other um, really important thing to, to, to know is 
whether or not the, the individual has capacity. And if they don't have capacity, then who is the alternative decision maker? Right. Often, if they turn up for treatment in an acute setting and we don't have that information, then we can't provide that treatment. And therefore, um, you know, it delays it delays the treatment for the patient mm -hmm. and it also increases the time burden on our service as well. Um, and then last but um, and and again, th those are sort of the four main things that really do um, improve a uh, the chances of the referral getting seen, but also the the efficiency of the service. The other last thing would be any any recent radiographs, particularly a recent OBG in the last twelve months. That that does if we've got that ahead of time, then mm -hmm. that really really does help. Excellent. So uh, along that that line. Um, if a GDP is concerned about capacity to consent to treatment, um, have you got any advice on, on how to assess this? Yes, absolutely. And I believe you have some lovely resources as well at DPL. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I have used many times because mm -hmm. consent is one of those things that it, it's one of those threshold concepts that I believe you, you have to keep revisiting to hone and to get right. Um, so, um, and I, I they, there was a lovely um, uh, paragraph back from your RiskWise um, um, edition um, 32 in May 2015 that I always go back to because it really does distill the, the essence of, um, of consent. And that's, uh, and I'll read it out, the, the principle of autonomy is the overriding feature of consent, which suggests a clinician should, wherever possible, help and that's so key, help and allow patients to exercise their autonomy as far as their capacity will permit. At the time the decision needs to be made, a person who lacks full capacity might be able to consent to dental, a dental examination or some simple treatment, but may not um, a general anesthetic. Now, that, those two key words in that phrase that I really go to are help and allow. Mm -hmm. So uh, really, um, it is so under law, it's a, we, we need to presume capacity mm -hmm. um, and but and only seek an alternative decision maker where we have positively identified an individual as lacking capacity. Mm -hmm. So this help and allow often um, I'm brought to think about individuals with autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. So if you if you're trying to. Um, uh, to to get consent from somebody would say uh, some form of uh, behavioral issues or um, who, or somebody who has autism spectrum disorder then if you're trying to do that in an environment that is noisy and distracting and people are moving around yes, and yes. chatting at the same time you are not helping that patient okay to to provide to the best of their ability um uh uh, and, and consent um so helping somebody by minimizing all of that um there then that yeah that's really really important so um um i guess uh some of the key features that i keep in mind when um when uh, looking at consent is obviously as i said before an adult um capacity must be presumed um, mm -hmm. unless you can positively identify that they don't have it um capacity is um specific uh, is decision specific so it relates to a specific 
um, choice of treatment. So mm-hmm. that is capacity may be different for you know a scale and clean as it as uh, um, to, to a, a general um, a general anaesthetic as per that statement. Um, a person's capacity may fluctuate, so it's temporal. So somebody mm-hmm. with um, a psychiatric illness such as schizophrenia may be able to consent on one day. However, they may not on uh, on another day. Mm-hmm. Another really important thing that I like to be reminded of is that we need to respect people's autonomy and therefore a person with capacity has the right to make a bad decision. Yes. So, um, you know, d- just because it's not a decision that we would make and that we would make for ourselves or our family members does not give us the right to override an individual mm-hmm. to make that decision. Um, substitute decision makers really, decision makers need to be that last resort. Um, and in order to for an individual, and I think I really like um, Tonya Giddis um, reminded me of this, but the term um, valid consent, not mm-hmm. just informed consent, but valid consent. I think that's mm-hmm. the key. Um, uh, not only must the person have capacity, but the consent must be given voluntary. They mustn't in any way be coerced. You mustn't be saying things like, well, if you don't do this, then I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, the person must be given um, sufficient and relevant and accurate information. Mm-hmm. Two of the things that um, I think we we often forget is that um, uh, that um, uh, that the, the, there are two consents um, always, or at least two consents. Number one there's um, in determining um, dental management. Number one is obviously the patient or the alternative decision maker, but there's also the second consent of the clinician. So um, the clinician needs to consent to to providing the treatment as well. Mm-hmm. So you know we, we're not slaves to. Um, uh, to 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 our patients, to our clients. And if we feel that either the treatment is we're not comfortable in providing it mm-hmm. um, or um, that it sits outside of our scope, then we, yes, we yes. shouldn't be bamboozled into providing that um, treatment. I think we've all been coerced at some stage <laughs> of our career into doing something that we really know we shouldn't do or or, or we're not comfortable doing. Um, and I think that forms part of the advice we give our members is, you know, don't do it if you don't think it's right and, and you're not comfortable and you don't think it forms part of your scope. Yep. So, yeah. Um, could I, if I could just add one thing to that consent sure. is that, look, if you're considering um, whether consent it can be obtained or not, it's, it's really worth documenting your decision-making progress. Uh, a process because if you document it people can understand why you came to the decision you did and that is always helpful if there's any dispute later on yes i think the the other just um tying into that sort of documentation uh, conversation is that often people think that the piece of paper is the consent mm-hmm. and, and that's uh, only yesterday i was um in a pre-anesthetic um clinic and a carer had brought an individual in for a a pre-general anaesthetic assessment but the decision the alternative decision maker wasn't there Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And what he wanted me to do was just give him the consent for me to, for him to take away and just to get signed. And I said, well, you know, that that piece of paper isn't the consent. The discussion that I have with the alternative decision maker and the documentation of that, that's that's the consent bit. Yeah. So we, I think it's it's almost boiled down to this legal rubber stamping that if I've got a signed consent form, then I'm good to go and I'm going to be safe. That's yeah. not it. Well, good on you, Andrew, because that's the message we keep hammering home. Is <laughs> it's the conversation and yeah. your documentation of the conversation, not that that signature. I mean, we sometimes see um, some of our members will say, look, um, you know, my patient signed that I might perforate and you know, that doesn't absolve you of that responsibility or you know, the, the conversation around relative risks of a curved root canal or calcified root canal. So sorry, getting off the track, but just an example of where that conversation is more important than the signature. Absolutely, because it goes back to that concept of valid consent. Unless mm -hmm. that patient understands what you're doing and you can prove that they've understood what you, they're doing, then that consent, that signature is not valid. Yeah. The other the other aspect that I think people tend to forget is that in dental school, we're always taught that no treatment is a treatment option. And that's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely fine. But what we fail to do sometimes is get consent for that treatment option, to get valid mm -hmm. consent for the person to understand, the individual to understand, or the alternative decision maker to understand the consequences of that no treatment. Sure. And the consequences of that no treatment can be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. They can end up, you know, in emergency because they didn't have that um, infection addressed and so mm -hmm. on. And they can go, then go back to you and say, well, you didn't tell me that that was a consequence of me not having no treatment. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as though that, um, you know, that option of no treatment is opting out of care and that therapeutic relationship with the clinician. And it's not. It's mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. a valid, as valid as option as going in and doing a crown or an implant or whatever. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, look, just backtracking a bit there, then um, what is an inappropriate referral to you? What's Sure. Okay. So um, looking at um, an inappropriate referral. So again, taking into um, you know, account those, those things that are appropriate, um reasons for referring um and then putting a sort of a milder slant on them so somebody with communication issues who has mild restrictions so that requires an interpreter um, mm -hmm. or um you know including auslan somebody who's got mild dementia or a mild learning disability mm -hmm. or the, who's engaging in an augmentative alternative communication aid and um, those that's not an in a, uh, that's not an appropriate referral that sits well within um a general dental uh, practitioner's scope and remit mm -hmm. um, somebody with mild cooperation difficulties so where the treatment takes up to 50% uh, longer mm -hmm. yes of course time is money and i do appreciate um, that we need to pay ourselves and our staff so in private practice that is obviously a consideration however I must always remind people that of the Disability Discrimination Act, and that defines discrimination as failing to make reasonable adjustments for a person. So whenever you are referring, make sure you're not discriminating. Um, yeah. So 
Um, I guess, and, and other things would be sort of mild medical com complications, such as, you know, um, maybe getting, I, uh, using antibiotic cover or getting some mm -hmm. tests before like INR or a full, bl full blood count before you undertake a procedure. That doesn't need a specialist to oversee. And and, and moreover, we, we're more than happy for you to give us a call and ask mm -hmm. our advice on something so that you can go ahead and feel safe in your management. Okay. Oh, that's good. Um, look, I, I, I take the view that we don't have to make a profit on every every patient we ever see. And I, I think people with disabilities have a hard enough time as it is. Yes. Um, you know, are spending a little bit more time. Um, you know, in general dental practice, it's, it's not that frequent. Uh, I, I think we owe it to the community. We owe it to our profession. Um, yeah, it's not a big burden to carry to um, to spend a little bit more time and a few more resources in, in helping these people out. So, uh, I guess on on that note, um, from your experience, have, have you got any suggestions for general dentists for management of patients with challenging behaviours? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know, in my experience, there. Um, the general dental practitioners are fantastic at managing individuals with challenging behaviors it's because what they're often um, without any of these bells and whistles approaches and they're using um, sort of bread and butter, but, you know, well, um, well developed um, behavioral techniques. And this alone is by far the most effective and appropriate management for the majority of people with challenging behavior. Mm -hmm. um so i think um yeah using behavioral management techniques and of course um, a lot of those are fairly innate and common sense um mm -hmm. taking your time um and you building that rapport um maybe having those extra appointments for desensitization but um many of many of us in a caring profession have those uh, have those skills where um I guess where where behavioral techniques are maybe not enough, then we can sort of um, maybe think about the use of adjuncts such as maybe oral sedation. Um, and when I am looking at uh, maybe oral sedation, just so that I, even if it's just so that I can get a reasonable look in the mouth, um, then I do think about, you know, the use of benzodiazepines, um, but maybe not necessarily the ones that people first think of, such as um, diazepam and temazepam. I will often go to my first port of call is oxazepam, which has a, a far shorter half-life. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, I'm reducing the risk around that prescription. So often individuals with with um, that require that may have an unsteady gait. They may be at risk of falls. They Thank you. So they may um, uh, they they may uh, and then those falls may result in catastrophic um, changes to their lives. So mm -hmm. um, I want a, a benzodiazepine that's going to be as short as possible, and that's oxazepam. And the other thing that I recommend is getting the general medical practitioner to prescribe it. Okay. And that again reduces risk. So again, you don't want multiple prescribers when it comes to drugs like these. That's a clever idea, I think, you know, because you get the medico on side, and I guess they've got more cognizance of the polypharmia that these people might be on. Absolutely. Um, and we're not going to fall into the trap of prescribing something that may be in conflict or 
um, enhance some of the other medications. Absolutely, yeah. So it's it's a minefield, and you also um, that multi-prescriber um, scenario is is fraught with dangers, mm-hmm. um, overdoses, drug interactions, drug-seeking behaviours, all sorts. So um, I like to think of the general medical p- practitioner as that individual's health home, mm-hmm. and we're a spoke from that health home Um, I think that's it's much more of a working in concert as with any you know of the disciplines I think we do need to work in concert with each other Um, so there is of course um, relative analgesia Mm -hmm. relative analgesia I feel does tend to have a fairly narrow um, uh, indication so Mm -hmm. you know, individual with challenging behavior, they need to be able to follow instructions, they need to be able to breathe through their nose. Um, uh, If they're not able to do that, A, they they may not be taking in the nitrous oxide, and B, they might be breathing it out through their mouth and giving everybody a a nice dose of happy gas. Um, And they also need to be able to tolerate that nasal hood. And I've talked about, you know, um, the uh, that sort of invasiveness of a nasal hood and and the triggering that can, can cause as well. So those are sort of the broad um, areas that I feel that do fall within the remit of a general dental practitioner. And -hmm. of course, then, you know, um, if the patient requires more than that, then we're on to IV sedation and general anesthesia. But again, those don't those are not risk free alternatives. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, we also I'm also mindful that if a patient does um they do require a general anesthetic but it isn't that's not the end of the story for the patient just because they've had a general anesthetic doesn't mean that they shouldn't be going back to the person referring them um and they shouldn't uh it's not it's not a one-stop shop and Mm -hmm. um you know that they've been rendered dentally fit therefore they don't need to see anybody again until their next ga Mm -hmm. because that's just that that's not really going to help their oral health Along that, those lines, I mean, uh, I think we all sometimes refer patients uh, with disabilities or special needs um, for GAs. And look, I'm aware of the mortality and morbidity of, of GAs with, in providing dental care. Um, you know, it's not a risk-free uh, um, procedure, as, as you mentioned. It, can you can you just sort of comment a bit on that and and how we should prepare patients or carers for you know the idea that this isn't yeah you know, this isn't the silver bullet? Yes, absolutely. So um, firstly, um, um, I just want to clear up a misconception that just seems to be out there amongst referring practitioners. The decision to take a patient to general anaesthetic is not is that of the treating specialist and not that of the referring practitioner so what i'm what i'm um getting to is that the patient's expectation or the alternative the guardian's expectation um needs to be managed from the get-go so we often have um patients or guardians call up frustrated saying well i've been referred for a general anesthetic so Mm -hmm. um i don't need to i don't know why i need to waste my time coming in for a consultation it's not like you're going to be doing anything and it's really difficult for us to organize transport and carers to come in 
Um, the times I've heard this only for the patient to not require a general anaesthetic, um, and it was only last Friday that I completed a course of care for um, uh, a lovely young lady with um, Down syndrome um, who required multiple extractions under local anaesthetic, however, mm. her referral to me was for a general anaesthetic, um, and she's, you know, managed to have all her treatment done in a couple of appointments, and she's good to go um, without without the need of a general anesthetic. Um, so, and, and the other thing that I guess I just want to repeat quickly is neither is the ref referral for the general anesthetic, the end of the involvement mm -hmm. of the individual who's um, referred them. The most effective use of our limited resources for, um, for general anesthetic um, is for uh, the dental practitioner to uh, refer to us for specific as aspects of patient care, and then for the patient to return to them for the routine uh, checkups. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Um, yeah, I, I guess if we set people's expectations for a general anaesthetic, um, it makes your job harder and it also makes the journey for the patient harder. Um, if, if they believe that you're not providing them what their dentist said you're going to do, yes. um, or that yeah, there's a very real chance that you'll be able to manage without a GA. Um, and we've almost prepped the patient for a GA experience. So, yeah, yeah. I, look, I think that's a very good, uh, very, very good point. And uh, of course, there, there's also the, the other sort of end of it in which they're not appropriate for a general anaesthetic. Mm -hmm. So quite often we will get referrals from um, uh, for individuals in aged care facilities. And we do know that they they are at significant risk from a general anaesthetic, um, both in terms of, um, uh, of um, mortality, mm -hmm. uh, but also increased mobility. We know that individuals with um, dementia often have that um, post-general anaesthetic delirium and that advancement of their dementia that is not reversible. They don't bounce okay. back from it. So, and, and I've seen it quite a few times where an individual will have a general anesthetic and they're relatively functional prior to that. And mm -hmm. whilst the problem that they've had, the, re and the reason that they've had the general anesthetic for has been dealt with, yeah. their cognitive decline is marked and their quality of life is significantly affected. So, there are, you know, it isn't necessary that if an individual is referred for a general anaesthetic, that that will happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing. It's like most things, there's always that balance, isn't it? That the balance of risks and benefits. Um, yes. You solve one problem and, and then introduce another or enhance another. So, um, uh, so Andrew, look, thanks very much for your time. Um, you've, you've certainly taught me things and I'm sure you've taught uh, many, if not all, of our our colleagues out there listening to this podcast. Um, sometimes just being able to hear an expert in their field uh, talk about how they interact with patients, how they interact with their referrers, um, teaches us all a few lessons. So, look, you're a very busy man, uh, and I appreciate the time uh, you've spent talking to us. And, and the benefits you're going to give to our to our members. So look, thanks very much, appreciate it. Thank you. And um, once again, um, yeah, I'm very flattered and honored that you, um, you've invited me to this. And, and I would like to thank DPL and yourself again for the support um, that I've received over the years. 
Thank you, Andrew, for that relevant and helpful content. And thank you for listening. We hope that this podcast was helpful to you and look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcast and would like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.